Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a printing press. Joining me is Liz, the minting press. Fresh sense with fresh sense. Sadly, Danny is out on assignment working on the obituaries. Our book this month is The Truth. I was very intrigued by the title, especially because I watched something recently that was talking about, like, how the concept of truth is complicated. But getting into it, a fun fact, my bachelor's degree is in journalism, so this one was very topical to me. (laughs) And also, it's how Terry Pratchett got his start in writing. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I feel like a lot of the times when people who don't really have a background in journalism talk about journalism, they're missing some, you know, key components. And this is very much like I was hearing my professors talking about stuff. There's a lot to go over, so let's dive straight into the trivia section. Published November 7th, 2000, and coming in at 90,000 words, The Truth is the 25th Discworld novel and fourth standalone story. Most of the dwarves we meet in this story are named after famous typefaces, except for Good Mountain, which is a translation of Gutenberg, famous for introducing the movable type printing press to Europe. The conspiracy elements of the story draw heavily from the Watergate scandal, most notably the committee to re-elect the president and the informant Deep Throat. The new firm are not exclusively a reference to the old firm from Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, but draw from the same general source material. That said, they do explicitly parody the hitmen from Pulp Fiction, with a side helping of Antiques Roadshow. Other references scattered throughout the text include Ben in Black, the fairy tale The King of the Golden River, The Shadow, and The Man in the Iron Mask. But the reference most central to the story is the line, a lie can run around the world before the truth could get its boots on, which is commonly attributed to Mark Twain, but the sentiment has been documented in works dating back to at least the early 1700s. The truth has been translated into over a dozen languages across 75 editions. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, clocks in at 10 hours and 23 minutes, with an abridged version read by Tony Robinson. Stephen Briggs also published a stage adaptation of the story in March 2014, but at the time of recording, it has not been adapted to any other media. In 2001, The Truth is nominated for both the Locus Award and the Prometheus Award, and in 2004, it placed 193rd on the Big Read survey. Dateline, Ankh-Morpork, where a rumor is circulating that the dwarves can turn lead into gold. This rumor is written down by one William DeWord, who makes his living writing a monthly letter to various nobles outside the city, letting them know about the ongoing (laughs) goings-on. To save on having to write out each copy of the letter by hand, William routinely employs an engraver to stamp out several copies that he can mail to all of his clients. However, on his way to get the engraving... William stops to talk with the sausage merchant cut me own throat dibbler. During his conversation, William is blindsided by a runaway cart. He wakes up sometime later to meet its owner, a dwarf named Gunilla Goodmountain. As an apology, Goodmountain and their colleagues give William the copies he needs of his newsletter, utilizing their incredible new printing press. I feel like a lot of the time with the dibbler specifically, 
we kind of either get a whole lot of him up front and that's a sign he's going to be a fairly big part in the story, you know, as much as Dibbler can be. And honestly, I forgot he was even mentioned in this book (laughs) until it's relevant again later. I think he's primarily in this scene to Mm -hmm. make sure that any reader of this book is aware of the character when he becomes relevant. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. And so when we get to that point, I was very much like, oh, okay, I get it. (laughs) Printing in movable type was mentioned in a couple previous Discworld books, namely as an example of how the guilds are utterly ruthless in protecting their business interests. Uh, Specifically, the engravers had brutally prevented anyone from printing in Ankh-Morpork. This is interesting to me because it's neither a new invention nor a forgotten relic. Yeah, this book feels really novel in how it handles, you know, technology and advancement. Because a lot of the times in the previous books, when something like that comes up, like with with the moving pictures, it's very obviously like this is an eldritch magical power and it's there's going to be major consequences because of this thing getting out of hand and this one very much like it's kind of like the clax you know where it's just part of the world and there's nothing otherworldly about it which even veterinari kind of acknowledges in early in the book yeah at the risk of skipping ahead a little too far veterinari specifically calls out that cut me on throat dibbler is not in charge of the project which he had been in previous instances of cosmic forces being made manifest through parodies of real-world trends. Mm -hmm. So it seems that Vetinari is very aware that Dibbler is sort of a barometer for eldritch horror. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's very useful on that. (laughs) When Cut Me On Throat Dibbler is making money, reality is about to collapse. (laughs) I think that explains his lack of success very well then. But despite the fact that the printing press is not uh, not given that same kind of otherworldly magic, it's still described as this kind of power, you know, that is kind of given to the gun back in whatever book that was. I think actually we'll come back to that at the end. Elsewhere, we meet three new arrivals to the city. Two of these newcomers are Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, who call themselves the new firm. You know, I prefer soft mattress by myself, but, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever your lumbar needs. They have been hired to escort a man named Charlie into the city at the behest of a group referred to only as the Committee to Unelect the Patrician. <laughs> Charlie's main contribution to this is that he bears a striking resemblance to said patrician, Lord Vetinari. Back with William, he mails off the newly printed letters to his clients and is left with several extra copies, which he sells to passers-by. This brings the knowledge of the printing press to the various religious institutions of the city, who object on the grounds that movable type might lead to content (laughs) cross-contamination. And to be fair, they are entirely justified in being afraid, Mm -hmm. because... We've seen in other Discworld books that new ideas can sometimes be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Hunan Ridcully, unofficial spokesman for the assorted churches and temples, brings the complaint to Lord Vetinari, braving the smell of the patrician's dog, Waffles. Vetinari decides to personally investigate the new printing press. 
Once he has confirmed that the machine is unlikely to warp reality, and that cut me own throat to dibbler is not involved in the business, so six of one, half a dozen of the other, the patrician <laughs> assigns William to be in charge of the print shop and its paper of news. This makes a lot of sense from Veterinari's perspective because, you know, when you put somebody very specifically in charge of something, especially somebody who, you know, has, you have some amount of social sway over because of William's position, uh, you know, you have a way to control that thing more easily than, you know, just letting it run, uh, run without something like that. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the patrician leaves, William and the printers are approached by foul old Ron and a terrier. Gunilla Goodmountain hires Ron as a newsboy, not apparently realizing that Ron is being assisted in the business negotiation by the dog, who is in fact none other than Gaspode, the talking dog who nobody seems to believe can talk. <laughs> Goodmountain sends Ron out with a supply of newspapers and an invitation to give the same deal to Ron's friends, the Canting Crew. The crew appeared in a couple other Discworld books. They're a group of vagabonds who are too low for the Beggar's Guild and paint a really kind of unflattering picture of homeless people, particularly in regard to mental illness. Notably, when they get this offer from Good Mountain, they have to convince themselves that this doesn't really count as work, implying that their lifestyle is based on a philosophical objection to paid labor rather than, say, institutional discrimination or societal prejudice. These books are not perfect, and one recurring flaw is how they depict poverty without meaningfully engaging with it beyond, look at these funny people who eat boots. Yeah, that's definitely a weak point in, you know, the social commentary that the Discworld books do kind of try to tackle. So there's a scene with the new firm talking to Mr. Slant, head of the Guild of Lawyers, who is acting as the representative for the committee to unelect the patrician. This is also where we learn that Mr. Tulip is an art connoisseur when he appraises the decorations in the magnificent house where he and Mr. Pin have Charlie imprisoned. I feel like this is a really interesting character trait to, to give uh, Mr. Tulip because like a lot of media and books would just leave him as kind of like the brutish oaf. But m making it so his intelligence kind of like centers on art and these very like classically, these very classically like highbrow things is provides a lot of depth and like unexpectedness to his character. I think part of that is derived from him being a parody of Quentin Tarantino characters mm -hmm. like who tend to share Tarantino's obsession with media. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, an extension of just, like, the classy killer type, similar to, like, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I will uh, show my handle here a little bit and say that I've never actually seen a Tarantino movie. I've seen enough parodies <laughs> of it to be able to uh -huh. sort of figure it out. I saw Kill Bill Part 1, I, mm -hmm. or Volume 1. I saw Inglorious Bastards. I don't know that I've actually watched Pulp Fiction all the way through. <laughs> Oh, I know I've seen part of the cowboy one, and I think it has Channing Tatum in it. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the film nerds come to our houses with pitchforks. <laughs> yeah, fair, I guess. <laughs> we rejoin William as he gets accosted by Sacharisa Cripslock. Her grandfather is the engraver who usually copies out William's monthly newsletter, which has been their primary source of income. 
Out of some combination of fear and desperate need for more content, William ends up hiring her as a journalist. I had a really hard time, like, pinning her down as a character because, you know, like, journalism content has, like, all the, its own stereotypes in media. I imagine she was going to be, you know, the plucky, like, uh, too curious for her own good kind of character. Um, and she is kind of that to an extent, but it also, like, frames her as... She's somebody who very much understands, like, you know, social hierarchies and, uh, like, social rules and tries really hard to fit into those. And so she ended up, like, skirting this line down the middle. And it kept me very, like, on my toes trying to figure her out. It's interesting because uh, the narration really primarily focuses on her appearance, which is probably (laughs) the result of William being the focal character and the... And the words sort of reflecting his thought process. Mm-hmm. Because I think she does undergo a character arc in this story, but because William is kind of vapid, we don't really get a very strong understanding of it. Yeah, this is definitely one where I'd love like to see a movie or a TV show or even the play about this, you know, and get to spend more time with her as a character because... You know, in, in literature, if a character's not important, they kind of just disappear into the background and you don't have the opportunity to analyze body language even when they're not speaking and all those kinds of things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. With how much the story focuses on her boobs, she might be a yeah. parody of April O'Neil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a possibility. <laughs> but yeah, like, why always with the boobs? Yeah. As the newspaper business picks up steam, the new firm purchases a disorganizer, noting its ability to perfectly record anything it hears. The disorganizer is powered by an imp, and I forgot how imps permeate the entire series, Mm because I vaguely remembered from my first time reading, because I read these books out of order the first time I read them, and I didn't even read all of them. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Going through this for the podcast, it astounds me how often they keep coming back up. Yeah, because like it's kind of feels like in every book we're seeing, you know, a camera or one of the disorganizers. And so like an imp is popping up in almost every book, it feels like, even though, you know, they're not necessarily getting that direct attention. The imps should unionize. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In the palace, Lord Vetinari reads the latest copy of the new Ankh-Morpork Times and is amused at how it provides lots of ultimately meaningless information. But then he gets a knock on his office door. The next morning, William is flabbergasted by how much money the newspaper is making when they are joined by Otto Shriek, hobbyist iconographer and vampire. Otto is a member of the Überwald Temperance Movement, a.k.a. a Black Ribboner, meaning that he has committed to not drinking human blood. The books treat this like an addiction and focus on the vampires using displacement as a coping mechanism. In Otto's case, he has redirected his energy into a love of photography, which is challenging because the bright light turns him to dust. (laughs) Yeah, it is uh, humorous and emotional at the same time. I really do love Otto as a character, though. I feel like he brings a really interesting energy to, you know, the cast. Otto is so good. 
I cannot stop imagining him as the, like, twinkish vampire from the Monster Prom <laughs> games. Nice. <laughs> I'm not familiar, but I can respect that. I think he's got a man bun. It's been a while since I've played him. I did not picture Otto with a man bun, personally. <laughs> Otto's passion for pictures proves invaluable when a gardener shows up with a parsnip that resembles a human nose. <laughs> At Sacharis's prompting, the Times hires him. As Otto gets his equipment settled, William asks the vampire about some of his stranger experiments with light, and Otto demonstrates something he's working on, dark light, which can illuminate allegorical truth. However, their conversation is cut short, by the news that Lord Vetinari has attempted a murder. I very much like how, though, Lord Vetinari's supposed crime is kind of the main plot of the book, and it's ultimately pushing everything forward. We're only really getting it as, like, snippets between everything else that's going on. Yeah, because it's a catalyst for a lot of stuff that happens, but it's not mm -hmm. really the focus of the plot. Yeah. Which, I'm, it's a nice change after uh, the watch books. As much as I love mysteries, it's nice to kind of look at them in a different angle. With Otto in tow, William heads to the palace, where the city watch are investigating the crime. The police don't quite know how to handle the concept of a news reporter, and Commander Vimes ends up sharing with William the details of what they know so far. Three maids heard Lord Vetinari's dog barking. And upon investigation, they found the patrician's secretary, Rufus Drumnot, bleeding from a stab wound. And, apparently, Vetinari, with a knife, stammering out an apology. Lord Vetinari himself was located unconscious in the stables, next to a horse loaded up with money. The facts imply that the patrician stabbed his secretary and tried to flee. But both William and Commander Vimes recognize that this doesn't make any sense, if only because the stab victim survived. <laughs> Otto attempts to take a picture of the commander, but the camera flash dusts the vampire. While getting some blood to resurrect him, William investigates the palace. He also suggests, once Otto is once again non-dust, that he start carrying some blood around so that he can be resurrected more easily. Back in the Times office, William dictates the article about the apparent attack to Goodmountain. When they get a visitor, the chairman of the newly expanded Guild of Engravers and Printers, Ronald Carney, along with his lawyer, Mr. Slant. They attempt to shut down the office, but Sacharisa points out that their new guild isn't legal without the patrician's signature and William gets them to back off by threatening to publicize their actions. This is one moment in the book where Sacharissa's, like, clear focus on uh, how society works really comes into play because she understands how these rules work, and so because there's no patrician, there can be no new guilds because there's no one to approve them. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the evening edition of the Ankh-Morpork Times goes to print, William makes his way to the Watch headquarters, noting as he goes that he seems to be under surveillance. William talks with Commander Vimes and Sergeant Angela von Überwald. This conversation is particularly interesting because longtime Discworld readers are familiar with the Watch from their own series, but here they are presented from an outsider's perspective. Uh, one highlight is that William knows the rumor that one of the Watch is a werewolf, but guesses that it's Corporal Nobbs. 
which makes logical sense. The narration paints Nobby as gross, unprofessional, and somewhat dim, so it's natural to assume that he retains his position based on some hidden talents. When William reveals his guess, Vimes and Angua freeze up, and he assumes it's because he guessed correctly, when it's more likely that they're trying not to laugh at him, which would <laughs> probably reveal that the werewolf is actually Angua. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other major highlight of this conversation is that Vimes points out that William and the Times aren't really accountable to anyone, which has also been a question in the Watch books. William is an idealist and holds himself accountable to the concept of truth, but there's no formal authority making sure that he doesn't abuse the trust of anyone who comes to depend on the Times as a source of information. This doesn't get meaningfully resolved in the story, but it hasn't been completely resolved in real life either. Yeah. I actually really appreciated the way Pratchett talks about it here because, you know, when I mentioned earlier that reading this book felt like, you know, sitting in one of my college lectures, this is one of those moments where it really stood out because, you know, I, I remember having countless discussions over, you know, journalism ethics and how to do the right thing and what is the right thing and you know, the failings of modern journalism. And it's really interesting to see that conversation kind of happening uh, in a setting where, you know, it's not the explicit point of the entire thing. Absolutely. On his way back from the watch office, William discovers that the Engravers Guild has started up their own newspaper, the Ankh-Morpork Inquirer, which is full of made-up nonsense that's much more interesting to read than the actual journalism that the Times provides. What's more, the engravers are buying up all the printing paper. So William and Goodmountain decide to talk to Mr. Harry King. This book also does a really good job at kind of hitting the major points of like the evolution of journalism without taking us through it step by step. And so, you know, the appearance of, you know, sensational yellow journalism comes up. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is where everything gets really complicated. Elsewhere, Mr. Slant speaks with the new firm. It seems that the patrician's dog has gone missing. And if that dog talks with a werewolf, that could give the watch enough information to start unraveling the conspiracy. Mr. Slant assures the new firm that the committee to unelect the patrician will protect them once the plan is finished, casually dropping a catchphrase of its leader, that a lie can get around the world before the truth has its boots on. Unbeknownst to Mr. Slant, the new firm have recorded this conversation on their disorganizer. Back with William, he and Goodmountain talk to Harry King, who runs the city's wasted disposal and recycling. King prides himself on having built a fortune on grit and ingenuity without belonging to any of the guilds. By appealing to King's pride and promising to report on his daughter's wedding, they convince him to let them steal a cartload of paper. As William's investigation continues, we learn more about him and his father. As William explains separately to Good Mountain and Otto, Lord De Word is a textbook example of an upper-class bigot who wraps his prejudice in politeness, and William tries hard to reject him and all the things he stands for. The Times prints that the watch is looking for the patrician's dog, and the next morning the office is crowded with people looking to claim the reward, 
despite none of them having the correct dog, and many of them not even having the correct animal. <laughs> William is surprised when a priest and a nun volunteer to assist with the queue, and although he doesn't know that they are actually Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip in disguise, he quickly realizes that they must have been directly involved in the apparent attack at the palace. Through Good Mountain's ingenuity, and Otto using his dark light camera, they manage to scare the new firm away. Some time later, Good Mountain and the other dwarfs decide to investigate the Inquirer by tunneling under the street, where they find that the ludicrous stories filling those pages are the work of none other than Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler, who has become so desperate for cash that he agreed to be employed. Sakarisa hires Dibbler as an advertising agent, and William gives her a key to his family's townhouse so that she can borrow one of his sister's gowns to attend a newsworthy gala. Parallel to all this, William has been approached by someone who refers to themselves as Deep Bone, and Deep Bone claims to have information about the patrician's dog. William agrees to bring a payment to Misbegotta Bridge, where he finds that Waffles is in the care of the canting crew. With Gaspode, sorry, Deep Bone translating, William gets the picture. There was an imposter veterinary. Elsewhere in the city, the new firm meet with Mr. Slant, threatening to implicate him in the conspiracy and to set him on fire until he gives them their payment. It's clear that Otto's dark light exposed something that set Mr. Pin very much on edge, and he begins worrying about the spiritual repercussions for his life of cruelty. Mr. Tulip is far less concerned, since he has a potato, and all that he remembers of his religious upbringing is that if you've got your potato, everything will be okay. Hoping for some combination of revenge and salvation, the new firm resolves to burn down the Times office. The book makes pretty clear that, you know, Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip are pretty darn good at their jobs. So I think it makes a lot of sense for, you know, their ultimate downfall to be because of something shaking them to their core, you know, uh, putting them really off guard so they aren't, you know, their usual selves. Mm-hmm. Sakarisa makes her way to the Dewerdit house, where she finds a lovely blue gown and a very drunk Charlie, and the two of them are found by the new firm, who bring her at crossbow point back to the Times, just before William returns with the crew. Waffles attacks Mr. Pin, causing him to accidentally shoot an oil lamp and set the entire office on fire. Everyone gets out except for the new firm, who hide in the cellar. When molten lead starts dripping down from the ceiling, Mr. Pin kills Mr. Tulip to use him as a platform. What follows is one of the more interesting encounters we've seen with death. Mr. Tulip has heard about people's lives flashing before their eyes, but what he gets now is his life from the perspective of the people he killed, forcing him to confront his own cruelty. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it's very dark, and I don't know if the rest of the story kind of reaches these levels you know the book says that mr tulip doesn't necessarily feel a lot of guilt about anything he's done because you know he just doesn't really think a whole lot about it and as far as he's concerned as long as you're really sorry it's all okay um and you know he after he's finished seeing all of the lives of the people he's killed he just walks off into the desert of death to just 
sit with his thoughts, you know, and it's, I don't know, it really stuck with me. Well, I mean, what's the title of this story, right? The truth. And you can't really be sorry for what you've done unless you actually confront it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As the staff of the Times examines the wreckage of their office, Mr. Pin emerges from the cellar. In a fit of blind panic, he attacks William, who ends up killing him with a paper spike. William investigates Mr. Pin's belongings and finds a huge sum of money and the disorganizer. Upon playing back its recording, he hears Mr. Slant quote that a lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And instantly he understands that his father is behind the conspiracy. I think this is really, really well set up in this book because William keeps referencing the fact that his father told him this over and over and over again growing up. Meanwhile, doing that to other people in the book. And it's like, why is he like, why are they hammering this point home so much? And then it gets to the scene and you hear and, you know, the disorganizer does not specify who was speaking. And we don't really get those clues from the text itself. But that line comes up and it's immediately clear. It's like, oh, okay, I understand why it's been here. Their press destroyed, William, Sacharisa, Otto, and the dwarfs burst into the headquarters for the Guild of Engravers and take over, giving Ronnie Carney a sizable share of Mr. Pin's jewels as their admission fee to the Guild. Once William has written up his article exposing the conspiracy, he goes to confront Lord DeWord, who decides that what William needs is to be sent far away. As a quartet of henchmen descend on William, Otto arrives and easily dispatches them with vampiric strength. Lord DeWord stabs Otto through the chest, but misses the heart. Otto is ready to break his vow and drink Lord DeWord dry, but at William's insistence, he shows mercy. Soon enough, Lord Vetinari is cleared of all charges and resumes his role as patrician, while Charlie joins the Actors Guild with a promise of a career playing Vetinari professionally. Mr. Slant is blackmailed into encouraging the guilds to leave the newspaper alone, and the Canton crew presumably return to their life of leisure. William and Sakharisa continue to expand the scope of the times, hiring new reporters and setting up ways to get news from across the disc including that of a potato that looks exactly like Mr. Pin. It seems to William that the printing press itself is almost a hungry monster demanding ever more stories to be shared, and for a little while he resists it, but he quickly accepts that he, like everyone else, has to move with the times. <laughs> so that was the truth. What did you think? I really loved it. I mean... Obviously, it's got a bit of an advantage, you know, because it, it touches on my background and I'm, I'm a sucker for that. But I also think it does a really good job of balancing the different elements of like humor and emotional stuff and drama. And I think it's a very fun read, especially as a standalone book. Yeah, this mostly does work as a book that you can just read as your first Discworld book, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, it does make a lot of references to other books, but nothing mm -hmm. that's, like, super plot-dependent. Yeah, I feel like if you read this book and then never read any other Discworld books and had no other knowledge of the Discworld, it'd be a very fine, enjoyable story, you know? Some discussion of various things. Uh, a large part of William's character is his relationship with his father, 
One thing I wanted to mention is that in the scene where Lord Vetinari volunteers William to be in charge of the newspaper, he calls him Lord de Word and later says that William should write to his father more often. That scene almost feels like it came from a draft where Lord de Word died before the story, which would be a very different book. Yeah, I definitely got that feeling because I was convinced it's like, oh yeah, he died ages ago and they had our unresolved relationship, and so William's carrying that baggage around. And then it's he gets mentioned that he's alive later on. I'm like, wait a second. Was I just, like, totally off base with that? <laughs> it's also interesting how William tries to define himself opposite his father by mm-hmm. trying to be a more tolerant and caring person. Mm-hmm. Something I identify with. There's a interesting moment with him and Otto where he's like, awkwardly fumbling around being a good ally to reformed vampires basically yeah i very much get that because the book makes a point and i think it's sacharissa telling william this that you know although he very obviously tries really hard with the dwarves and otto it's very clear that you know he's not at home with them in the way that he's really really trying to be yeah and part of that is just upbringing right mm-hmm If you weren't raised with an expansive understanding of what normal is, it can be hard to adjust. And I think this book does a really good job because a lot of William's own struggles about his relationship with his father, Otto kind of points out that a lot of the things Otto complains about with his father are ways that William is exactly like him. How traits that can be negative can also be flipped around on a positive side. Also, still on the subject... A lot of other characters do point out ways that William is very much like how he describes his father. Mm-hmm. One thing that I kind of objected to is when uh, Sakharisa seems to be pointedly not mentioning how that applies when uh, William says that the DeWords have a history of bullying themselves into positions of authority. Mm-hmm. William did not choose to be in charge of the times. Yeah, Veterinari made that call. <laughs> yeah. Another instance of like what feels like a different draft creeping in. Uh, early in the story, several characters make reference to a guild of town criers, which doesn't show up in the rest of the story. I like to imagine that they make their money in a similar way to the Thieves' Guild, and just people pay them an annual fee to not have folks just shouting in the street. <laughs> That said, if this book was written today, I imagine that they would have been incorporated as a parody of 24-hour news networks. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great idea. And if, you know, there's ever uh, an adaptation of this that comes to the screen, I think that has to be there. Like, it's obligatory. It would be not taking advantage of the adaptation to omit that. Right? (laughs) There's one line that I really enjoy that I also wanted to just bring up. It looked to Sakharisa that the only tools a dwarf needed were his axe and some means of making fire. That would eventually get him a forge, and with that he could make simple tools. And with those he could make complex tools. And with complex tools a dwarf could more or less make anything. Mm-hmm. That stuck out to me years after reading this one as just a, a simple statement of sapient ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it provides a lot of context and information about the dwarves because you know all the dwarven characters we've seen have been really ingenious industrious people and this wraps it up in a nice little box with a pretty bow on it 
Further on the subject of the dwarfs, uh, one part we skipped over was a bit of world building when William and Good Mountain talk about money. It turns out that the reason why Discworld dwarfs are obsessed with gold is that, culturally, a child's upbringing is calculated as a debt to their parents. And when two dwarfs want to get married, they pay off each other's debts. It sounds cold-hearted and greedy when put in human terms, but the implication is that it's a way of codifying love and familial obligation in a way that actually puts less pressure on the child than the human method of just vaguely defined emotions. It's contrasted with the way that Lord Deward treats William, demanding unquestioning obedience from his son with no justification other than their blood tie. Yeah, because a lot of Williams, I think core in this story is ultimately dealing with his relationship with his father i think that's a very interesting little point to put in there because you know it's a foil to his story a couple small things that just didn't fit anywhere Uh, mr tulip we didn't mention has not really a drug addiction he has an everything addiction he just takes mostly by nose he just consumes all things chemical he treats it like anything chemical is drugs, which I assume mm-hmm. is a parody of how people tend to assume that organic is synonymous with healthy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good parallel. <laughs> Another random good moment that I just want to quote directly. At the end, when Lord Vetinari comes back to the Times office, I'm sure we can pull together, sir. Lord Vetinari raised his eyebrows. Oh, I do hope not. I really do hope not. Pulling together is the aim of despotism and tyranny. Free people pull in all kinds of directions. He smiled. It's the only way to make progress. That I enjoy because it does reveal that while he's legally a tyrant, Lord Vetinari is just using the facade of being the evil ruler to effect positive change. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. Because of the role that journalism plays in society, or at least here in the U.S., you know, it's supposed to play an important part in moderating uh, the government. Like, it's uh, a term I heard when I was in college is that journalism is treated as the fourth branch of the government. It's, you know, it's supposed to hold them accountable. And I think especially at this point in the world, you know, it's so easy to put information out there. I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, a lot of change and conflict happen because of information and ideas being shared on the kind of scale that it is. Very true. If we had to come down to a thesis for this book, it kind of is buried in the title, right? Yeah. It is about the importance of the truth. But I think in the greater scope of Discworld, the entire Discworld, much like human understanding of the real world, is built on stories, right? Mm -hmm. We are predisposed for pattern recognition, and stories are the most important kind of pattern for us. Yeah. And that's the theme of the whole thing, right? Is that there are people who try to deny the truth and people who try to embrace it. And William can't fully embrace just fact. like Not enough to put his father's name in the newspaper as the person orchestrating the lies that would kind of end up destroying the city yeah mm-hmm. he very much rejects you know what the Ankh-Mor pork inquirer is doing and making the sensational fluff that it's ultimately not really adding anything it, but it's just giving 
people something to talk about. I think it really highlights that even though the Times tries to be the more logical side of that, I guess, that it's still really driven by emotion, just like all journalism is. Yeah, well, I mean, so is all logic, right? Yeah. There's no reason to do things without an emotional cause. Like, pure logic isn't, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think what this story is trying to say is that the truth isn't just fact. It is what we choose to understand as the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also part of that is in... Sacharisa's understanding of like social strata and various other characters choosing what to believe from the different newspapers. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that did remind me of what my thought was. Mm-hmm. So, William is a very rich, you know, socially powerful person. He's trying very hard to be an average person. Meanwhile, it seemed like Sacharisa is an average person who's really trying hard to fit in to that kind of social strata that William exists in, and I think. It's why they work really well together as characters, but also highlights um, their different views on things and why they're able to pick out different things in all the scenes that they share together. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Also, this is largely tangential. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's definitely not the focus of the story, but do you think that William and Sakharisa are going to end up in a romantic relationship with each other? I feel like... It might be a thing that they're like, you know, like, like, let's give it a try. And then they date or whatever for a few weeks and they realize, no, this is not what our relationship is. I could definitely see that. Because, like, William is definitely attracted to her. Mm-hmm. But, like, he does phenomenally bungle any, like, <laughs> attempt to compliment her. Uh-huh. Yeah, it feels like, although, you know, they obviously get along and they share similarities... Their differences ultimately make them be like, no, I like you as a person, but this is not going to work. Oh, yeah. Uh, further on the theme of just like the narrative of reality being what we choose, Otto choosing to change what he is from the traditional vampire to being a photographer and like constantly struggling with that indicates that this is not I and mean, not a one-time choice that we make, right? It's something we have to do moment to moment. Yeah. Whether we choose to be not a vampire or to just be a decent being. Yeah, it's a constant effort to be both true to yourself and in the context of the story, you know, true in the larger narrative. And like being a human is not one and done. It is something we do like moment to moment, day to day. Yeah, and especially because, you know, we're always changing. What's true also changes. That brings us right up to about the end. I want to thank you, Liz, for joining me in the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Also, a big shout out to Willow Carter for our theme music and to everybody who tunes in. If you want to get involved in the conversation, you can chat with us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, or join our Discord server. And if you want to... Support the show, you can do so by contributing to our Patreon, where we give a shout-out to one randomly selected patron each month, which this month is Carol. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, thanks, Carol. And, of course, we like to close out each episode with a reading of the favorite footnote as voted by you. The best way to describe Mr. Whittling would be like this. You are at a meeting. You'd like to be away early. So would everyone else. 
there really isn't very much to discuss anyway. And just as everyone can see any other business coming over the horizon and is already putting their papers neatly together, a voice says, If I can raise a minor matter, Mr. Chairman, and with a horrible wooden feeling in your stomach, you know, now, that the evening will go on for twice as long with much referring back to the minutes of earlier meetings. The man who has just said that and is now sitting there with a smug smile of dedication to the committee process is as near Mr. Windling as makes no difference. And something that distinguishes the Mr. Windlings of the universe is the term, in my humble opinion, which they think adds weight to their statements rather than indicating, in reality, these are the mean little views of someone with the social grace of a duckweed. Join us again next month, where we will be discussing The Thief of Time. Until then, the the turtle turtle moves. moves.